0: welcome to this peer voice activity to access the entire activity including supporting material go to www.peervoice.com forward slash mpr this activity is supported by an educational grant from novo nordisk as welcome to this peer voice panel discussion on improving screening identification and management of mash patients in the primary care setting this activity comprises three presentations featuring Professor Lisa Lotteglud and Dr Lisa van Wagner. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting
1: materials and share this activity with colleagues. I'm Lisa Lotteglud. I'm uh, working as a clinician researcher in Vila Hospital, Copenhagen, Denmark, and also at the University of Copenhagen. And I will be taking you through this session about... Identification of Patients at Risk of Masal-D. And I'm here with my esteemed colleague Lisa Van Wagner from University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. And uh, before we begin, I would like to mention the new nomenclature, which is uh, Masal-D and MASH, where we previously used the terms NAFLD and NASH. And I know, Lisa, you were part of the Delphi Consortium that uh, proposed these changes. Yes, thank you, Lisa. I think what's really important
0: for general practitioners to understand is that the goals of the nomenclature change. And this was a multi-society with multiple stakeholders that included patients and advocacy groups. And, um, you know, as we've seen a lot in our clinical practice is that patients found the nomenclature of NAFLD to be very stigmatizing with the word fatty liver in the name and alcohol in the name of the disease. And so what has happened here with the nomenclature change is that we are now calling the disease what it is. It is metabolic dysfunction that then affects the liver. So the diagnostic criteria really reflects what we've understood about this disease over time, right? Which is that it is fat in the liver as a result of one or more metabolic risk factors. So diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, and or obesity. Um, And that um, alcohol, while also a cause of fat in the liver, um, is part of the spectrum of disease. And I, and I think one of the things I want to ask you is how do you talk to patients in your clinical practice about their alcohol use in this disease? And what does the new nomenclature help us do in terms of understanding the differences between mastled and alcohol-related liver disease?
1: So uh, what's important is to uh, try to get as realistic a picture as possible of your patient. So what you look at are all the comorbidities that can influence disease progression. And here you look at the metabolic diseases, but you also look at possible intake of alcohol. And you add this up to identify your at-risk patient. And this is really key. And this is one of the reasons why I like the new nomenclature is it really helps you identify those at-risk so what would you look for the most in your patients with uh, Masildine? I think that's a great question. When I'm seeing
0: a patient, I'm thinking, number one, okay, they have some fat or steatosis identified in their liver. Um, they got an ultrasound or a CT scan because they had some right upper quadrant pain, and now they're sitting in front of me. How do I know that this is Masild? Um, And so I look to the new nomenclature, and I say, okay, they have obesity as a risk factor. Maybe they have Masildine do they have another cause for that fat in their liver? And so I question them about their alcohol use. And the and the guidelines pretty much have stayed the same for pure methyl. Women have no more than one drink a day, and men should have no more than two drinks a day um, to qualify for pure methyl. After I've asked that question, then I'm trying to think about risk stratifying them for whether there is fibrosis. Um, and that's one of the things that our guidelines tell us. And so Lisa, why is fibrosis so
1: important to us? What has the evidence shown us? Because it's the main predictor of a detrimental outcome for our patients. We know this very clearly from all our studies. If you have fibrosis of a certain level, then you have an increased risk of not only end stage liver disease. And uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, but also cardiovascular disease, and this is why it's so important that we identify this particular subgroup of patients. I was just um, noting that you were saying we need to look for other causes as well. So obviously, so if you do have a patient with steatosis of the liver, you do have to make your diagnostic assessment like you would in other cases. So you can have. Uh, fat in the liver for other reasons than muscle D. Yeah, I
0: think that's really important. Then the nomenclature really, I think that guidance document really lays it out very nicely that we have to think about hepatitis C, especially genotype 3. There are other much rarer, sort of what we call monogenic causes of steatotic liver disease. And of course the alcohol, which we talked about, and then the overlap between the two, which I think is really important, is understanding now that there are people who have metabolic risk and who use alcohol, who are at even more risk for advanced fibrosis, cardiovascular diseases, liver-related outcomes, and cancer outcomes, which is another important thing that is uh, at risk and increased risk compared to the general population in those with mast And um, So when a patient is sitting in front of you, Lisa, what are some of the tools that we might have at our fingertips to help us identify
1: who is at risk for more advanced fibrosis? Well, the first uh, thing to look for is actually simply age so with increasing age you do have an increased risk of fibrosis so that's important we also know that uh, the evidence suggests that premenopausal women have a lower risk of fibrosis and the minute we hit menopause then our risk increases and men have an even greater risk than us so these are aspects that you can look for and then you can look for the metabolic comorbidities, and they're very important. And if you have several, that may also increase the risk of uh, disease progression, not only for the liver, but for the overall health of our patients. This is very important.
0: I think that's a really important point. And I think one of the things that that I'm always talking to my, to my referring physicians and my primary care colleagues about is the importance of understanding the the load of metabolic risk factors and how much that increases risk moving forward. And I think another misunderstanding is that patients who have normal liver chemistries are people we don't need to worry about. Um, and I see you nodding your head uh, emphatically with me here. And, and why is that, Lisa? What do we know as
1: hepatologists? We, we know that uh, many of our patients have false positive. Uh, elevated enzymes, liver enzymes, and and many of our patients have false negative. And unfortunately, if you have severe cirrhosis, your liver enzymes can be completely normal. So this is very key. So on the one hand, you risk over-diagnosing your patients and also under-diagnosing, unless you use the pathways that have been set out and the recommendations that you do use for your fibrosis tests. And uh, I think we've got some very nice, validated, non-invasive tests now that can actually help us in primary care as well as uh, secondary care. Uh, What would you recommend? Yeah, I think
0: those are excellent questions. And I know we're going to talk more in depth about those non-invasive tests in, in future iterations of this talk. Um, And then I think it's important to know that there are things that are at our point of care that we can just use, like you said, age and the laboratory tests, like, you know, uh, liver chemistries that we have at our fingertips to help stratify risk in terms of a risk score called the FIB-4, which we'll talk about more. And then, of course, there are point of care imaging tests that we can use. There are proprietary send-out labs that we can do. Um, But uh, the field has really come a very long way. And I think for primary care doctors to understand that there's actually a lot you can do in general practice that can help prepare a patient for coming to a specialist office. And so in somebody, say, who does have elevated liver chemistries, we still want to evaluate for the cause of elevated liver chemistries to your point. Just because it's an elevated liver chemistry doesn't mean that it's all due to the MASL or the MASH. People, because it's so prevalent, 30% of the global population has fat in their liver, which means you can have hepatitis B and have fat in your liver. You can have autoimmune hepatitis and have fat in your liver. And so that differential diagnosis for abnormal liver chemistry still holds true and we still need to do that serologic workup in general primary care. Um, I think that's really important to understand. And then, you know, beyond that, it's to not be falsely reassured, as as you mentioned as well. Those normal liver chemistries, especially in somebody who's had a history of abnormal liver chemistries, actually is an ominous sign because it more likely than not, unless they've lost a lot of body weight or they've had a big change in their metabolic risk, it probably means that their liver disease has progressed and it's become more burnt out with more scarred tissue and therefore they don't have any more um, uh, liver cells and immunotransferases to life anymore. So I think that's a really, really important clinical practice point that you brought up.
1: So thank you very much for this discussion, Lisa. The key messages to take home today is to be aware that you have at-risk patients in your clinic and you can identify them using uh, an algorithm uh, looking for those with metabolic dysfunction. But also, please remember that you can also have fat in your liver because of alcohol overuse and other comorbidities such as viral hepatitis. So it's crucial that you test for this. So I thank you very much for your attention. And thank you so much for joining me, Lisa. And uh, we hope you'll uh, join us for the next session about muscle D. Hello, I'm Lisa Loddeglud from Copenhagen University Hospital, Biloa in Denmark. I'd like to take you through this activity on MASH, the role of non-invasive testing for fibrosis and other biomarkers, and the next step to take in management of the patients according to their results. Joining me in this discussion is my esteemed colleague, Lisa Van Wagner, from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Thank you so much for joining me, Lisa. And uh, this is uh, one of the key aspects of uh, patient management when you have uh, individuals with MASH in your primary care.
0: Yeah, so I think it's really important to look at our practice guidance, and it's fairly consistent between the European practice guidance and the American practice guidance that the role of the general practitioner is to help risk stratify on who needs to be referred to specialist care. When you have some you have, you know, millions of people who have this disease, not everybody can be seen by a hepatologist or a gastroenterologist. So we really need primary care to help. The first thing is that we want to take the at-risk population, and of those people, we want to determine who is at highest risk for having what we call at-risk match. And those are people who might have evidence of scar tissue or fibrosis, and anybody who basically would have F2 fibrosis or stage 2 fibrosis or higher. And the way that we do that is we can just use point-of-care formula called the Fibrosis 4 score, and that's what's in the primary guidelines is the primary risk assessment. The FIB-4 score uses simple components like age, their um, amino transferase level, and there's a formula. You can Google the calculator. Many electronic health records have this embedded in the calculator, in their electronic health record already, and it spits out a score. Anybody who has a score greater than 1.3 is considered at higher risk. So who gets to stay in primary care practice? Anyone with a score that's less than 1.3 If they have normal liver chemistries, their score is less than 1.3, you can likely keep them in your primary care practice and most importantly, reassess their risk over time. And that's based on the number of metabolic risk factors that someone might have. If they have one metabolic risk factor, you might be able to reassess their risk in two to three years. If they have diabetes or they have more than one metabolic risk factor, you probably want to shorten that interval and reassess their risk in one to two years on a regular basis. But then there's that greater than 1.3 Fib4 threshold, which leads us to the next step. And so, Lisa, when you see somebody who has a Fib4 score greater than 1.3, what's your next step in thinking
1: about what should we do to determine if that person has advanced fibrosis? So the next step is to remember sequential testing because there's not one single test that can stand alone. We also always have to confirm using other tests. And one of the methods that I find is very useful is uh, diagnostic imaging. And we have specific uh, tests for this and uh, what they focus on is the liver stiffness assessment. So the more fibrosis you have, the stiffer your liver will be. And uh, this means that you can identify those at risk of what you uh, mentioned uh, advanced fibrosis so that's f2 f3 or f4 and f4 that's our patients with cirrhosis and uh, i know that in some areas of the world uh, there is actually access to uh, a fibroscan or a shear wave ultrasound and uh, i do believe that uh, in the u.s so certainly some areas you do have these uh we do. And I think that's also important to know.
0: So what is a fiber scan? We talk about this all the time. So it is a point of care ultrasound test um, that can be trained. Anyone can be trained to do it. It actually, you don't require a degree in radiology. You don't have to be a radiographic tech. Um, it can be trained. So we have medical assistants here in the U.S. that are doing it. We've trained residents, students, certainly physicians can do it as well. Um, and it the patient has to be fasting for at least three hours, which I think is important for everybody to understand, because there are false positives, like you bring up. That's the, the importance of sequential testing and actually confirming results that you find on these non-invasive tests. Anything that increases blood flow to the liver is going to potentially falsely elevate liver stiffness. So patients cannot be in the post prandial state. They have to be fasting. Um, and then, you know, patients who have severe inflammation of the liver, whose liver chemistries are floridly abnormal, you know, greater than three to five times the upper limit of normal, they can lead to false positive tests. So that's important to understand the limitations of all of the imaging tests that you use stiffness as a marker. That's the ultrasound-based technology that you mentioned that can be done at point of care. And then there's more advanced tests that may not be readily available to general practitioners, but are certainly things that you'll hear about in the literature and that the specialist will use. Like, MR-based images, like MR elastography, um, liver multi-scan, um, and some of these other technologies that look at combinations of different MR imaging, imaging markers as well. Um, so I think those are really important things to to understand about the strengths, but also the limitations. In addition to the false positives, Lisa, there's a lot of false negatives with this. And can you talk maybe a little bit about where are the situations we can get false negatives? Well, false
1: negatives, uh often is uh, very the very young because age is part of the uh, equation, so you have to be aware. But then on the, on the other hand, these patients rarely have very advanced fibrosis. But this is just something that we need to be aware of. And if we're not sure, then we need to do uh, sequential testing using something else. And another thing that I'd like to mention is uh, you cannot use uh, abdominal ultrasound or a CT scan to exclude cirrhosis so we found this so many times Uh, people do an ultrasound they say oh looks fine Uh, but this is actually has a very low sensitivity of even advanced liver disease uh, which is cirrhosis so this is just crucial and uh, I think it's important to know when to refer your patient and you can actually do that if you don't have uh, access to uh, additional diagnostic imaging or specific fibrosis tests, then you can refer to your local uh, gastroenterology or hepatology department for further assessment. I think that's really important. And in addition to that
0: 1.3 threshold that at least we use here in the US for feeling like more comfortable keeping someone in your practice, that doesn't apply in somebody who has persistent elevated liver chemistry. Certainly we as specialists should be seeing those patients because again we talked about this in our in our prior evaluation you can have steatosis in the liver and have another condition like hepatitis B hepatitis C autoimmune hepatitis and so there's an evaluation a specialist that we do do for the abnormal liver chemistries the other important thing is that in patients in whom the fib4 score as your primary risk assessment is greater than 2.67 those patients should be referred immediately those are the people who are at Highest risk for maybe that is potentially indicative of very advanced, more F3 or F4, in which more confirmatory testing or even consideration of liver biopsy on a specialist level will certainly be something that we will talk about with our patients and consider. And um, The other thing I wanted to mention, I love your point about not being able to rule out cirrhosis in the, for m- imaging. The other thing to remember about this disease is that just because somebody has a normal liver ultrasound or a CT scan, meaning they don't have any fat that's detected um, and they have some mild abnormal liver chemistries. they can still have mast cells. And that's because the sensitivity of ultrasound and CT scan for detection of fat only is uh, um, applicable if at least a third of the liver is involved with fat. And remember that the definition of hepatic steatosis is anything more than 5% of the liver parenchyma. So there is a population who may have more mild mastled, or they may have advanced MASH or mastled and not have a lot of fat left, and you may not see that on imaging. And so I think that's a really important take-home point. So the guidelines really exist here, and these wonderful algorithms um, that we're showing you here really exist to help guide where can primary care do that primary risk assessment of the patient, and then how do we best direct patients that need to be referred further for specialist care?
1: Yeah. So these are the key aspects. So no which test to use, and when to refer your patients for further assessment. And this is the best way to streamline your uh, patient management. And we know that the FIP4 also uh, predicts uh, the prognosis of our patients. So this can definitely help you tailor the management of your patients with Masal-D. Thank you so much for joining me, Lisa. Uh, This was uh, an interesting discussion and I hope uh, thank you for all of you who've been listening. We hope you will be interested in listening to our third uh, activity about MASH. I'm Lisa Glud from Copenhagen University Hospital Vilaura in Denmark. And I'd like to welcome you to this activity on key guideline recommendation for the management of patients with MASH and their contributing comorbid uh, conditions And I'm very happy to uh, be joined in this discussion with uh, my esteemed colleague, Lisa Van Wagner, from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. And uh, thank you so much, Lisa, for for joining me. Um, So patients with MASH uh, have several comorbid uh, conditions that we have to be able to take care of. In primary care and in uh, the hospital sector, and in collaboration, often is the best way to do so. Yes, I think this is so important. Um,
0: we cannot tackle the mastold epidemic without the help of our general practitioners, and we play such an important role. When I'm sitting in front of a patient in my clinic and they've been referred to me with mastold, um The primary thing that I am first doing is doing that risk assessment of sort of where are the comorbidities um, and how can I try to address them sort of one by one and how can I work with the general practitioners and maybe other specialists, their cardiologists, their endocrinologists, whoever it may be, to help better manage that person as a whole. For me, the very backbone and the basis of every patient I see, no matter how severe their disease is, is going to be to try to address lifestyle interventions particularly if the patient has overweight or obesity, and how do we do that? For me, a lot of the questions come up, well, what what do I eat? What kind of diet do you recommend? The one that has certainly been the most well-studied is the Mediterranean diet, um, and so that is the one we most consistently recommend, though, of course, there are nuances to that depending on patient comorbidity, whether it needs to be low salt because of hypertension or more focused on carbohydrates because of the diabetes, but that certainly has been the most highly studied and is the most efficacious. Um, in terms of improvements in the metabolic profile in this patient population. Um, And then the other dietary things that I I talk to patients about is, this is always a favorite, also a favorite of mine, is coffee consumption. Um, It's been shown that up to four cups of coffee per day, uh, dark, um, uncaffed, dark caffeinated unsweetened coffee has been shown to reduce the risk of liver disease progression um, as well as reduce the risk of liver cancer by about 40% compared to control. And so that's always a favorite recommendation to patients. But I always do highlight this is not a latte for your liver um, because all those extra sugars and carbohydrates with milk and added sweeteners certainly doesn't help the disease. So in terms of diet interventions, that's what I'm talking about. But with that also comes the inevitable Doc, do I need to lose weight? And so, Lisa, how do you approach that question? What do you tell patients?
1: So uh, what I I like to do is uh, to go over the risk profile of the patient because with increasing fibrosis, uh, you need additional weight loss. So if you only have a steatonic liver, then you can get away with uh, a smaller weight loss of about uh, 5 to 10%. Whereas if you've got fibrosis, you need to lose 15%, 10, 15% of your body weight. But doing the math with your patient can actually be very important because you don't need to go all the way down to uh, an Instagram BMI. You just need to uh, go down to a weight that you're comfortable with and that helps your comorbidities. And if possible, stay there as long as possible. And another key issue is uh, exercise. I, I agree with you there.
0: The exercise component is really important. And I think this messaging also helps when I talk to patients. When you look at the studies that have been done on exercise in this population, number one, it doesn't matter what you do. You just have to move more. Um, that's intentional exercise. So at least here in our guidelines, we in the US, we recommend at least 150 minutes per week of moderate to vigorous physical activity, right? So the patient can talk, but they can't sing a song. And that's the analogy that I use to patients when I talk about that. Um, but in addition to that, I mean, I, I'm looking at the two of us now giving this talk right now. We're sitting in our desks. We're at our computers. That's most of what most of us spend our life doing these days. Um, and so just getting up and moving more during the day makes a big difference. Um, So it doesn't matter what you do, but you have to do something in order to help improve the, the metabolic capacity. And exercise alone, even without weight loss, actually can improve hepatic steatosis, which I think is another important message. People can get frustrated that the needle on the scale is not moving when they're exercising, but exercise has benefits, of course, above and beyond just the liver health, but the cardiovascular health, which we've talked about before, is the leading cause of morbidity and mortality in this population. So that's really important. In addition to that exercise and that weight loss and the dietary recommendations, what are the other things that you try to address in terms of the metabolic risk, Lisa?
1: Comorbidities. So very careful assessment of all the comorbidities that can occur if, uh, for instance, your patient has developed overweight or obesity. There are several interventions that we can give. And uh, from what uh, the evidence tells us is that you can use those interventions like you normally would, unless you have a person with decompensated cirrhosis. So even in the earlier stages of cirrhosis, you can use most interventions just like you would in any other patient. So that's also important. I totally agree with you. I think that's a really important point. Number one is that
0: the weight loss medications that have been coming to market across the world have been shown to be safe in this population. Whether they have additional benefit on the MASH phenotype above and beyond their weight loss has still yet to be borne out, and those are being studied right now in large phase three trials. The, um, but they seem to be safe to use in this population. The other thing is bariatric surgery. Um, both you know surgical revisions as well as endobariatrics has been studied in this population, and it seems to be safe, if not potentially even highly efficacious. There has been some large studies in the bariatric surgery population that have shown improvements in hard outcomes, card reduction in cardiovascular events as well as reduction in liver related mortality. So when I'm seeing a patient, if they meet criteria for bariatric surgery and they have failed all kinds of other appropriate interventions for their obesity, I'm certainly recommending that in my population as well. But um, Lisa, what about their other comorbidities in terms of safety of medications for the dyslipidemia or their diabetes? Is there anything nuanced
1: about this population that we need to
0: let practitioners know about?
1: Fortunately, very little nuance except most is safe most of the time. And one of the questions that I get the most is uh, statins. Can we use the statins? Should we take the patient off the statins if they've got muscle D with elevated and liver enzymes? And the answer is, no, please don't, because uh, it's actually very beneficial in this patient group. And I like it very much, this uh, new way of looking at our patients, because it's the holistic view of the patient. So it's entire health outcome for an individual. So we don't only focus on our own organ but we have people that we collaborate with that can help us ensure we get the best prognosis for our patients. So uh, I very much agree with you that uh, bariatric surgery is uh, definitely something we should consider. I absolutely agree with you, for sure. I think the thing that it seems that always
0: plagues us here is, yes, we do not have an FDA-approved medication for this drug right now, or I should say an approved medication anywhere in the world, not just here in the U.S., um, and so that can be frustrating for practitioners. It can certainly be frustrating for patients. But I think, as you've pointed out, it's the changing of the message that there are things that we can do for patients, that patients can do and take steps for themselves, and that we can work as a multidisciplinary team to try to address
1: the systemic disease that metabolic mash really is. Yes, an early detection of complications because we know it's a two-way relationship. So type 2 diabetes increases the risk of masilden and vice versa, muscle D increases the risk of type 2 diabetes. So please uh, remember to screen your patients or comorbidities because it can really make a massive difference. So thank you so much for joining me, Lisa, uh, in this uh, activity. And uh, thank you to all of you who have uh, listened to our information about muscle D management. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.